Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast. I'm Alan Seals, and this is Intimate Personal Conversations with Theater's Biggest Names, the podcast, or something like that. Our guest this week is Michael Yuri, and this dude has just been all over the place. He started out in Texas, sort of on a fluke, was recommended uh, by, by a teacher to start drama and just fell in love with it. Never thought he would do it professionally, and then all of a sudden... He's getting into Juilliard and doing all of this Shakespeare and all of this classic, classic performance and gets out of college, out of Shakespeare, out of Juilliard, can't get hired doing Shakespeare. So he's like, what am I doing? And then, of course, as we know, gets into TV, traditional theater. And it just goes to show you that even with the classical training, the Juilliard training, the big stuff that everybody sort of dreams for, your career path, your life, can just change in an instant, depending on where you are, who you are, and who you know. So this story is actually really, really fun. I can't wait to share it with you. Please find me online on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. I'm on Facebook slash official theater podcast. I'm actually even on Clubhouse now. Just search for me, Alan Seals, in Clubhouse. If (laughs) any of you know what that is, it's still brand new, so I'm just still learning it. Now, everybody, please enjoy this episode with Michael Yuri. Our guest today is a star of both stage and screen. He is a director and an executive producer, maybe best known for his starring roles as Mark St. James on ABC's Ugly Betty, or for originating the roles of Arnold and Brian in Torch Song and Grand Horizons on Broadway, respectively. Other TV and film credits include Modern Family, Workaholics, The Good Fight, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, and he was even a guest judge on RuPaul's Drag Race on the 2015 season. Other stage roles include Buyer and Seller, with a C, Angels in America, Forum, and so many more. He can currently be heard in As the Curtain Rises, Broadway's first podcast soap opera, and is part of a brand new project called Smithtown, which focuses on some repercussions that happen from some seemingly meaningless social media interactions, which premieres online February 13th. Michael Yuri, welcome to the theater podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's really nice to be. What a nice introduction. You Thanks. Really, you know who I am. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, yeah, we've been working with each other for a little bit, but uh, I mean, I, 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 it's funny because when when you meet in person, and uh, I don't know if we've actually met in person, person, but we've been in. I think we have. No, I think we've been in virtual sessions like a lot of 2020. And working together on various things, and it, it, it's funny because you like we we know each other through as the curtain rises, and then as I was researching you for this, all this other stuff, you know, was I was pulling out of the deep throes of the internet, and I was like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah, I forgot about that, I forgot about that, I forgot about that, and you're a few months older than me, and you know, which makes me feel like I haven't accomplished anything in my career because you've done so much, but. Oh. When you look back, and I think this is a great place to start, actually. When you look back at your life, you were born in Houston, Texas, yeah? Yeah. Right, so you're born in Texas. So look back across your career, coming from Texas. uh, I guess let's start with 
<laughs> did you did you ever see yourself where you are now and what made you want to get into performing as a little boy in Houston? Oh wow. Um that's a good question. That's a that that's a heck of a way to start. I I uh you know, I was in Houston until I was about 6 and then we moved to 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 Dallas. Really I we moved from the Meadows, which is the suburb of Houston, to Plano, which is the suburb of Dallas. Plano um, being where I spent most of my my childhood, um, and it was uh, you know I, I wanted to be I wanted to make movies. I loved I loved movies. I would act out movies. I would make my friends do make make movies in my backyard. I would um, I would I would cast all of my GI Joes as famous actors, and uh, I would I would I would you know create movies with them. I didn't really film them so much as like. I would just like, you know, act them out. Uh, I would, re- re- you know, reenact movies I loved, like Jurassic Park. And uh, and then I would, uh, I mean, actually, Jurassic Park came out when I was a teenager. So I, I played with toys until I was, I was probably too old to play with toys. Last week. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, but but I think that's where I got, you know, when I, when we moved, when we made that move, I, I really went into my shell. I was, I think I was pretty extroverted in Houston. But when we moved, I started. We moved in the middle of a school year, so mm. one day I was just like plopped into a, a new classroom, and I was really shy. And I remember vividly that day. I remember playing on the playground. Nobody knew me, and I was running around by myself. And I spent a lot of time playing by myself uh, in those first few years before I started to make friends. Um, I mean, I made some friends right away, but it was really like a few years before I got back out of my shell. And it was even longer before I um, I had the guts to to try theater. I I, I I loved movies. I wanted to make movies. You know, once I started, once I saw a Tim Burton film, I said, "That's what I want to do. I want to make movies like that." Um, and it, and uh, um, and then I, I I knew the only the only thing close to movies that was attainable to me was theater classes. But there was a there was a really intimidating theater teacher. It was this interesting thing, and this is such a I I feel like this is such a theater thing. Sometimes the most intimidating people uh, are you know like you you just get a feel for them. And there was this theater teacher in middle school who was so intimidating and so beloved, and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get into it. I couldn't I couldn't get her. She I couldn't get her to pay attention to me. I couldn't get her to, to notice me. I was still pretty shy. And I saw all these other people just thrive around her. And so I, it made me re- recoil even more. And I still feel that way. I mean, there is still something about me, even though I'm super extra, extroverted and, you know, I, I think I have a, you know, pretty uh, outgoing personality. There is, there are still situations in, in which I will, you know, recoil. And this teacher made me recoil so much that I didn't do theater at all in junior high. It wasn't until I got to high school, and I and I, I think I realized when I got to high school, okay, this is it. If you don't do that, if you don't take theater classes now, you never will. And <laughs> I get to my first theater class, first day of, of of freshman year of high school, and my teacher is on my teacher who I have not yet met is on maternity leave, and I have a substitute. And I think this is what is wrong. Why do I keep making these wrong decisions? What is wrong with me? I've got now. I'm screwed. And I and so I'm looking around my theater class, and I'm serious now. I'm very serious about theater at this point. And nobody, 
in this theater one class freshman year of Vines High School in Plano, Texas is taking it seriously at all. It is just a credit. And I realized, and I re- I, find, I feel myself going back into my shell more than ever. And so I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I told this substitute teacher who was just a substitute teacher. I said, I think, I think I, I don't think this is the class for me. Uh, I, I want to be in a class where people take it more seriously. I don't think I can thrive in this class. And she said, okay, come here. And she took me into the office and she called up the normal teacher, Mrs. Colvin, who was on maternity leave. And she put me on the phone with Mrs. Colvin and we chatted about, you know, what I wanted and what I was looking for. And Mrs. Colvin said, okay, no problem. I'm going to put you into the theater two class. And so suddenly I was in, I was in a different class with um, older kids. Now in Plano, there's ninth and 10th grade, which is Vines High School, which was like high school. And then there's 11th and 12th grade, which is senior high school. And this was all done because of sports. This was all an effort to give uh, like football players really a chance to play on a, the non-varsity team before they get to the varsity team. So, so based, and it worked out well for all the extracurricular activities because you didn't, you weren't, you know, when you were a sophomore, you weren't competing with seniors. So I'm suddenly in a class with sophomores who are taking theater two, which means that they like theater one enough to take theater two. They were taking it seriously and they were cool. They liked me. I was the young kid in the class <laughs> and they were all really nice to me. And I was able to be an extrovert and it, and, and it was the first time. So I don't know what made me think to talk to that substitute, but it was really that like, that was what did it. And, and Mrs. Colvin I'm still in touch with her. We're Facebook friends. And, you know, I still hear from her. And that baby is now a major adult. Um, <laughs> um, but, but she, you know, she, no, you know, I thought that it was something about her. It was something about me. And it just made sense. And that teacher, I mean, I had a lot of really amazing teachers, but that teacher putting me in theater too. And then that teacher, I, you know, I, I said I wanted to be a director uh, she let me be her assistant director, but then she also made me go on stage. Um, she let me direct up, you know, I, I had an idea for a play I wanted to direct and she was like, okay, go for it. And she gave me the resources, but she still made me be on stage. And, and it was doing a play and at that level and that, and you know, that's when I got like my first laugh on stage and, and my first taste of it. And, and, and it, because she, incur- you know, it was like a real give and take. She, she, she was like, I'll, I'll put you in theater too, but you got to, you got to show up for me too. And, and I'll let you direct a play, but you got to star and, you know, you got to play the Captain Von Trapp for me. And, um, and, and so, and then I went on to senior high school and it was similar, you know, I mean, it was, it was tougher. There was a lot more, there were a lot more students. Um, I got to, when I got to, uh, uh, but I still thought I would be a director and really because Mrs. Colvin was like my hero, my idol, I thought I'd be a theater teacher. That's what I really thought I would do because I saw it. I could see the whole career right there in front of me. I thought, that's what I'll do. I'll be Mrs. Colvin. And I got to senior high school. And I was when I was a junior at Plano Senior High School, Michael Benjamin Washington of Broadway and uh, Boys in the Band and all kinds of amazing work. He was a senior in my, in my class. He was a class ahead of me. And he was a complete genius. And my like, absolute... Like I, I no, I I never looked up to anyone like I looked up to him, and and I, I he he was he I thought he's he's that's an actor he that's what you have to be you have to be at least as good as Michael 
to be an actor and there's no way I'm that good and there's no way I can do it. So that's why I, I, was, I was like, I'm definitely a theater teacher. I'm definitely going to do that. Uh, maybe I'll do, you know, community theater, but I'm going to stick, stay, stay here in Texas where I belong and I'm going to teach, uh, you know, teach high school drama, direct plays, be in, be in local theater and, and watch Michael Benjamin Washington star rise. And so, so he, 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 let, he graduated and, and he, he, uh, I remember vividly that he did not get into Juilliard. Um, so he went to NYU, he went to New York and he went to NYU, which was amazing. But I thought, wow. So, so there's Michael Benjamin Washington up here. And then above that is Juilliard. Um, so I'm right where I belong down here. <laughs> in, in, in Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex teaching theater and doing community theater. And, and then the next, my, my senior year, I was doing, a, I, I was doing really well. I mean, I was really thriving. I was like getting good parts and plays and I was winning speech competitions and, and I was really loving it. I was getting to direct some, you know, student projects and, and I was, I was having, I was really thriving. And then I was doing a, a, a poetry competition. I was reciting a poem that I thought was very serious, uh, very dramatic about divorce <laughs> which I was so such an expert on, and um, and the audience began to laugh at me, and I didn't understand why. And 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 in hindsight, I realized I was just I was you know my version of being dramatic was was really over dramatic, and, and and people found it funny. And so as I'm doing it, and they're laughing at it, I start to realize in the moment I start to think, oh, they think this is funny. What else can I do to make them laugh? And so I just it, on the spot in the moment turned what I thought was a serious, tragic poem into this big old farce, big old comedy. And it worked and I won. And that was really the moment where I thought, okay, here I go. I'm going to try to be an actor. Screw teaching. Screw, you know, screw Texas. I'm out of here. <laughs> and, and, you know, I still think I would love being a teacher and I still think I would be good at a teacher. And, I, you know, I still look to those those teachers I had, like Mrs. Colvin and Mrs. Wilbanks and Mr. Porter, Mr. Steele and Ms. Ida, the late Ms. Ida, um, all of those teachers that I had in high school were just amazing. But, but that was the moment I was really just getting a laugh. It was, it was, and it was, and it was like, it was the live performance of it too. Like, like changing it in the moment, like, like seizing the moment I was in and following through with that. That's when I thought, okay, I can do this. I can really do this. And, and so I sort of scrapped all my, and there was another thing that was, oh, this is another thing that was happening at the same time. I had really crappy grades and I had a really low G GPA and bad SAT score. And I got, I had it, but I had already at that point applied to all these state schools to be a drama teacher. And um, after my SAT score came back and it was pitiful, I got rejected. And it was a sign. I remember sitting, sitting, getting the rejection letter, having just had that poetry, uh, you know, win, and thinking this is a sign. Um, I, I'm not gonna, I, I'm not gonna try to be a teacher. I'm gonna try to be an actor. And the local community college that had a really good theater program had offered me a scholarship, and so I said, I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to community college. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna act, and then I'm gonna figure it out. So I'm gonna give myself a, a year, a buffer year, and then. You know the ACT? Did you take the ACT where you grew up? Yeah, yeah the SATs and the ACTs. That w I yeah. don't. God, it's been so I long, and I don't remember. We did like SAT twos. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the SAT is is hard, 
And the ACT is also hard, but it's for people, it's for like, it's for creative people. It's more for mm-hmm. creative people. So it's like the shapes and colors version of the SAT. <laughs> <laughs> I took the ACT later than the SAT. So I, I get the ACT scores back. I get kicked, I, I get rejected from all the schools. I decide I'm going to go to community college and, and pursue my, my, my new, my new found dream is of being an actor. And then I get my ACT scores back and I did really well. And then I suddenly got acceptance letters from because you know when you take those tests you put you put in whatever colleges you're interested in and they just automatically send them your scores. So I got back my ACT scores, and then that was followed by acceptance letters to these schools that I had already. And it was one of the you know you just like when you're quiet with yourself and you and you have a hard decision to make and and you realize oh oh no that is not what I want and and you can't go back you can't unring that bell. And, uh, and so it was, it was like an interesting, wild twist of fate. And, and then I went to this community college. I went on a field studies trip to New York. My first time in New York, we saw, ten, uh, I think we saw 13 shows in 10 days, wow. including the original cast of Ragtime and, um, and uh, that incredible production, the, 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 a new brain, the original production of a new brain with uh, Malcolm Getz and, uh, Kristen Chenoweth and Norm Lewis. We saw um, uh, uh, Helen Hunt in, in Twelfth Night at Lincoln Center. That was so incredible. And um, and we toured Juilliard and NYU. And at the tour, tour of Juilliard, my my community college teacher said, audition for this place. And I was like, okay, sure, why not? And he, and he said it to me specifically. He took me aside and said, um, you need to audition for this place. It's, this, is, this is the place for you. And, and I thought, there's no way you're crazy. Michael Benjamin Washington didn't get it. There's no way I'll get it. And, and I, and I did, I auditioned and I got in. So that was like, that was a lot more than you asked for, <laughs> but that was beautiful. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's sort of like how it happened. That's how I ended up in New York. And, and, and it was, it was really, you know, a Juilliard is not for everybody. Um, for sure. Like there's a lot of people and, and, and I think that, and now, you know, it's, it's such a, the business is so subjective and it changes so frequently, especially, especially TV and film where, you know, where like, I mean, the theater is still like, I think there is still like a, uh, a work ethic. Um, like the work ethic of the theater can really get you places and you mm-hmm. can really work your way up. But the, the TV and film is, is not like that. It's, you know, they, they use you when they need you. Um, and, and, and so I don't think Juilliard or really any, um, any, uh, you know, conservatory training program has ever really figured out how to, how to choose actors that will, that will be viable in TV and film. I mean, they get lucky a lot of the times, but like, so it's not for everybody. So there's a lot of people who end up at Juilliard and, and it, and it, and it isn't right, or they get out of Juilliard and there's nothing for them. And, and. And, and I, I'm sure that's true with all conservatories, but um, it was right for me, and it worked out. It was I had an amazing four years there. That's such a beautiful story. But I have to point out through the whole story, you didn't. I don't know if this was on purpose. Left out mention of your family. Uh, I have no family. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's what I was going to ask because your parents the whole time. You know, my parents. I wanted to go to Columbia for acting. And my mother would not let me. She said, you, you, you need to get something to have a fallback. You need to have 
a degree. So that's why I got a computer science degree. And then with that degree, became a professional actor. And then wow. Writer's Strike hits in 2007, and I go back to computers, and that's you know led me down the path that I'm on now. I never auditioned a day in my life after I moved to New York because I moved to New York in the middle of the Writer's Strike. Oh, my God. Wow. So Ugh, having, I, having I the fallback was actually detrimental for me. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it, it allowed me to have a regular paycheck. But if, for me, like every day I miss not being on stage. Mm. So back to you then. You're like, where are your parents throughout this whole thing? And, you know, if, well, and I yeah. can sympathize, by the way, with moving in the middle of a school year. I moved in the middle of seventh grade and it was the worst depression I've ever had. Oh. Wow. wow. I mean, that, see, I was, it was second grade for me, which is different. You know, like you're just like a little, you're, you're far, far less of a, of a human being. <laughs> you're more of like a mound of potatoes. But when you're in seventh grade, my God, where, from where to where? From Florida to North Carolina. Oh, wow. So there. I was actually going to ask about your accent too, which you don't have the Texas accent. Right. Because I got, ostracized so hard moving from Florida to North Carolina because I was the new kid without the Southern accent. Right. So they made fun of me for having an accent to them. You know, from their perspective, oh, I was the weird God. one. And I but just Florida remember... Like a neutral, it's more of a neutral dialect in Florida. Because there's, well, so there's nothing. Many, right, there's so many t- t- kinds of people. Yeah, yeah. So Florida to North Carolina, and I never broke up with my girlfriend. So Nancy Benedict, I'm still technically dating her. In Florida. <laughs> <laughs> she know? Is she a I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> wow. So wow. That's that's so I know other people who broke into show business right at the time of the writer writer's strike. And it is so I, I and I imagine the people who are breaking into the industry right now feel the same way. <clears throat> or a similar way, you know. I mean, this is lasting longer. Obviously, this pandemic is lasting a lot longer than the writer's strike, but that had to have been, that was, a t- the timing was so terrible for the writer's strike. It happened right when people were, get, you know, getting into it. So, oh, I'm so sorry that 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 is a really weird time to 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 jump into things. But to answer your question about my family, uh, you know, my parents were, in the audience um, the, the, at that poetry competition. Um, my sister was actually sitting at the table when I received my sister. I have an older sister who's seven years older than I am. And she was home for some reason. She was in college or even out of college at this point. But when I got, when I started to get all my rejection letters, she was sitting there. And I remember, I remember she helped me decide to go to the community college instead of, <clears throat> instead of continuing to try to be a drama teacher. Um, I, I remember opening the letter and being like, I didn't get in to this school. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like I didn't get into, you know, Brown. It was like, I didn't get into Midwestern state university. And, <laughs> and, and she was, she was like, how do you feel about that? And she's a psychologist now. So like, she was always very in, in, attuned to people's emotions. And she was like, how do you feel about that? And I was like, I don't know. It makes me feel like maybe I should try to be an actor and I should go to this community college that offered me a scholarship. And she was like, that sounds great. And then my parents really supported that because they liked having me around. I was a mama's boy and they, you know, they, they, were, they, they liked having me around. They knew it was going to be cheap for them um, because they were great. I mean, we were super middle class, but they had saved money for me to go to a state school in Texas. 
Um, they had it, they, you know, they, which was, you know, at the time, like $6,000 a year or something right. ridiculous like that. <clears throat> and I remember when I eventually a year later got into Juilliard, the money they had saved for me to go to college covered one year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One year. Um, you know, so I had a lot of debt when I got out of school. Um, but, uh, but, but they were, you know, I think once I, well, I remember when I auditioned for Juilliard, my mother saying, I don't know how we're going to pay for this. And I was like, I'm not going to get in. And she said, I think you might. My mother, like my mother was, I mean, and she wanted me to try. She just wanted me to be aware that like, I was either going to be in debt for the rest of my life or, um, you know, like it was going to be, or they were going to have to move in, move out of their house or, you know, like, like it was going to be, there was a potential struggle. Um, they were really supportive, but they were also always re- really realistic about money, um, which was, which was good. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm, I'm, I'm very stingy. And, and, and I think that a lot of that is because of them, but, um, but they were really supportive of that. And when I got into Juilliard, I think they were like, their minds were kind of blown because they thought what I thought, which was if Michael Benjamin Washington didn't get in, then I'm not going to get, I feel bad, you know, dragging him through the mud, (laughs) telling everybody that he didn't get into Juilliard. He's obviously doing very well. Um, he didn't need it, but, but I was, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, good question. My family, they were, they were cool and they were very supportive and they're still very, very supportive. I mean, they, 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 I got my love of movies and TV from them. You know, like they're great film film watcher. They love watching movies. And so we would go to the movies all the time and, you know, and they, and they have good taste too. I mean, you know, they're not like, I wouldn't call them like, um, you know, they're not, they're not like, uh, they're not, they're not like auteurs, (laughs) you know, or like they're not film cinema watching, you know, they don't, they wouldn't go to a film festival, but they love movies and, and they have, you know, they have good taste in movies and, and they know when something's crap. Um, so, uh, you know, they've, they've always been really, really great. My sister's always been really great. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. I mean, I, I don't know the professional casting side of life. Uh, I've never been in that particular spot. So I I would think just like you have a Harvard or a Princeton or a Brown or a something on your resume, if you're going to business school, that when you walk into an audition for Telsey, Telsey's like, oh, Juilliard. Okay, well, let's give this kid a little bit higher of an eyebrow raise. Because obviously, that has some sort of cloud along with it. But along those lines, then... You so Ugly Betty was end of it was like 20, 2007, right? 2008. I think it from it was 2000. I think we shot the pilot in 2006, right? So then that Long, means yeah, the same age, do the math. So you were out of Juilliard for like four years before the pilot aired, yeah. I think three, I think it was three, yeah, right. And three and a half years, yeah, three and a half, four years. So, what I guess looking back on that time in your life, then what do you think sort of propelled you to the next level in terms of, uh, I guess, did 
I mean, I guess the, the nice answer is like my immense talent got me everything I am today, right? <laughs> uh, but there, there's obviously a bit of luck, a bit of talent, yeah. a bit of who you are, a bit of who you know, and who a bit of who you want to, being the person people want to work with again. But um, right. really good timing. Really good timing. Yeah, just being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So you get out of Juilliard. Was it difficult for you after Juilliard? And then up until Ugly Betty, I feel like once you have a show, like it was no not a small part. So once you have a show like that on your resume for years, then right. it opens up obviously many, many more doors, which lead you leads you leads you led you <laughs> to the wonderful success you're experiencing these days. Um, but looking back on that time in your life, then did you did you ever question where you were, or was it just kind of like one thing after another of like, okay, this makes sense, this makes sense, this gets me to where I am next? Mm, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, there was definitely dissatisfaction. You know, I got out of school wanting <clears throat> wanting to do. I mean, I fell in love with because you know, I, like I said, I wanted to make movies. I wanted to be Tim Burton or Steven Spielberg, uh, and then I switched gears and decided, okay, I'm going to be an actor. Um, and I, and I was thinking, okay, I'll be, you know, I'll be John Ritter and Tom Hanks, you know, I'll be a comedy, you know, I'll, 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 that's what I'll do. Cause I was making people laugh and I, and I thought, oh, that's what I'll do. Um, and then I got in, and then all through Juliet, I, I just loved it so much. I loved the classics. We did Shakespeare and Chekhov and, and Moliere. And I loved that stuff. And so by the end of school, I thought I want just to go from Shakespeare play to Shakespeare play. I want to travel the regions and I just want to do Shakespeare and that's what I want. And I didn't get, I didn't get those jobs. You know, like I, I, I thought, I thought that's what I'll get. And I even like, they, they, they gave me an award at Juilliard for Shakespeare. And, and I thought, Oh, this is great. I'm going to, uh, uh, this is, this is right. And then I get out of school and I'm not really getting Shakespeare jobs. In fact, I'm not getting them. I'm, I'm, I'm not getting many jobs. I've got a commercial here and there. I did some I remember I auditioned for and got a really cool play at HB Playwrights uh, with Austin Pendleton. And I was so excited. It was such a cool play. Not a long run, but a really cool play with a really cool actor. And when my agent called to tell me I got it, he said, uh, so you got the job. It starts rehearsal you know, in, in two weeks. It runs for this long. No pay. But, uh, you know, and I was like, wait, what? No pay. I didn't even like, get up until that point. I didn't even realize that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and you could like get a job and, and not get paid. And, I, t- and I, I was like, well, that's, I took it. And I did a few of those showcases. They're called showcases. Right. Showcase. And, I, and also I was like, Austin Pendleton's in a play where he doesn't get paid? Like, how is this a thing? He was in short circuit. <laughs> um, but wonderful movie, by the way. Great film. But wonderful. What and two? <laughs> suddenly, suddenly, like suddenly, I realized, oh wow! So, so <clears throat> cool and money don't always go together. Like that was cool. Like that was probably the first cool. That was the first cool thing I did, and you know, I remember every second of it. But I didn't get paid, and so that means, like, when I got an audition for Law and Order, you know. If I'd gotten it, I would have had to <clears throat> drop out of the play, and they couldn't have done anything about it. you know. So it was like that was a real rude awakening, and 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 then I did a, another showcase and, and and a few more, and then I ended up getting my equity card. And I was always so doing things in New York. Um, I hadn't yet gotten a job at the, that job out of town that I was sort of wanting that Shakespeare thing, and I wasn't really getting seen for you know. I mean, yeah, the Bernie Telsies, they they did see you. But you weren't. I wasn't really getting anywhere. And I will say, like, 
the Juilliard thing is a blessing and a curse because there's a lot of, there, there was, I remember when I got out, there were a lot of people who were saying it takes four years after Juilliard before you're really there. And I was like, four years from Juilliard? Four, like, you get out and then it takes four more. And, and there was like, yeah, you're kind of a robot when you get out. So you need to like, you know, you need to like earn your stripes and, and, you know, hone your chops and then, and then you'll be, and then you'll be ready. And I was like, this is, that's crazy because I just spent four years preparing for this moment. And now you're telling me I'm supposed to wait for, and what am I supposed to do in those four? What am I supposed to do in those four years? Obviously I must have to, I must, it's like that whole, like, you don't get a job because you don't have enough experience. Well, how are you supposed to get a job if you don't have any experience? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to get experience if you don't get a job. And so there was, there were moments where I felt like that. I was was like, oh, wow. How I, I, I was told at school that I was good at Shakespeare and now professionally they're telling me I am not. And that was really, that was really hard for me to figure out. And then, um, the, the, you know, about a year after I graduated, I was doing a play, you know, for, you know, I, and this is like, you know, there's, as you know, in New York, there are lots of different kinds of theater. There's Broadway, there's like the institutional off Broadway, and then there's a lot of other theater. Off, 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 I was doing something that was not so great. Uh, I got my, and I hadn't gotten my equity card and my agents, you know, like my agents knew that I really wanted to stay busy. And so they were, they were okay with me doing these plays in New York, as long as I could get out of them, if something came along. And I was like, sure, whatever. I don't care. I just let me, please let me do something. Please let me, I spent four years working from nine in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. And now I've got nothing going on. So please let me do something. So I was doing one of these plays in a basement somewhere and, um, and having a good time, but it was not, it was not great. You know, it had problems. Um, and an audition came through. I went on tape with a casting director in New York and it was for a pilot and they liked me. Uh, for it. So they wanted to see me again. And, and, and then they wanted to, to test me. And this was a big deal. This was like a big deal. I, nothing like this had happened to me yet. And I hadn't even done a guest star on it. I hadn't even gotten a callback for a law and order or anything like that. So this was like a big deal. And my agents were really excited about it. And I, I had a manager at the time too. That they were like super excited about this. And 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 I was like, okay, television, huh? Wow, this is happening. I guess this is I'm I'm actually in play here, and um and 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 they they wanted me to to do a, a test, a screen test, and that meant I had to fly to L.A. and do this really stressful. I do the audition again in a room full of exec studio mm-hmm. executives, and that the studio executives liked me. I had to go and do it again for the network executives. Which is, by the way, nothing like actually shooting a television show, um, because it, you know, especially this was a one camera, you know, single camera, one hour show. You know, you shoot it like a movie. You don't shoot it in an office filled with people in suits who have business degrees. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you shoot it for it you. So uncomfortable. It's so weird. It's so. So strange, and it's. I think it's different. It's a little bit different now, but at the time, that's what it was. And so, so I knew. I knew the. I knew the game. I hadn't played the game yet, but I knew the game. I had been. I had been made aware of what the, what was 
what was what would be in, expected of me and i was like okay well i'll give it a shot and they said okay here's the date of the test and the date of the test was the opening night of the play oh no and it, and the new york times was coming to this basement to see this play and and so i was like i can't i can't I know I said I would only take jobs that I could get out of, but this is like, it's opening night and the New York Times is coming. That's, this, you know, that's sacred. You can't just skip that day. And my my reps were furious. They were like, right, like about to drop me. And I was like, I'm sorry, I can't go. I can't leave the play and miss opening night. And uh, and so I I, I, I quit. I, I, you know, I passed, I passed on the, on the test and they came back and said, all right, we'll test them digitally. And my agents were like, this has never happened. We've never even heard of this before. And they were like, <laughs> the miracle of technology, they will film your audition here in the <laughs> and within hours they'll have it <laughs> on the West coast. And I got it. I, I think, and I think that was, this, that was not like, I was not some like wunderkind, you know, like it was not like, <clears throat> it was not like, you know, I was the, the, some like, ne- I, I was the guy. I was like, 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 that's the situation where, and I, and I always say this when people ask me about casting is like, you like nine times, unless you blow it in your audition, when you don't get a job, you are never going to get that job. Like, like as long as you do your best, as long as you're good, and you usually are, the reason you didn't get the job is because it was never yours. And that's the that's the shitty thing about auditioning is like we have to go through so much to work so hard and and jump through so many hoops when you never had the job. Like it was just never yours. And this job was always mine. That this 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 pilot that that that, that I tried to I tried to lose was just mine and that's why I got it that's it wasn't it wasn't some like you know because it because by the way it didn't really lead I mean it it didn't really lead, it didn't really lead to anything it didn't get picked up I was not good in it it was not good but they needed me and so and so even when I said no I still got it and that is like that's like sort of the magic special sauce that's 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 where you want to be and that's why you know I always say to, to actors who are starting out it's like you you have to know what you're good at because you know they're gonna they're gonna throw you at lots of different walls to see where you stick but you're the one who knows what you can do and you're the one you you know best what you're good at and and those are the things you should go for um and uh and this this was it was just mine it was my job and and in the same way that you know all those shakespeare plays that i had tried to get up until that point, were not, and um, and so that was not Ugly Betty. That was a different pilot. That was not good, and it did not get picked up. And uh, uh, but but I learned so much from that experience, and from getting a pilot that like pilot season was a lot more manageable to me after that, um, and made a lot more sense. But also, I think karmically, the fact that I didn't screw over that play. Um, because if I had gone on, if I had gone on a plane and and can't, and they had to cancel opening night, how how was I supposed to go in front of a room of suits and and win a job? I mean, how could I have done that? I don't. There would I don't, have been no understudy, right? Because this was like yeah. off, off, off. Yeah, 
no one was there. I even, wow. I, there was a choreographer or something and I was like, could you do it? Do you know the lines? And he was like, no, I can't do this. I was like, all right, well, you know, like it was just, there was this, no, there was no way. They would have had to cancel and hope that the times would come another night. And I would have been in LA, you know, in a, in a, in a waiting room, sweating bullets and, you know, so. Oh, well, <clears throat> obviously great. made the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> so then coming coming back then, I mean, so once you get into one of those places, you know, with the suits in the rooms and you're you're at a level of recognition, I guess, internally that they are aware of, you know, the people who make these final decisions. So even though, you know, you get a pilot, the pilot itself wasn't good, didn't go anywhere. But then was it sort of that thing that helped you uh more into the tv and film space because you've got you've got so many tv credits you know as as equal or more than than theater and you know it can be said that tv is a little bit easier to do in that you could show up for two days and you're done right. versus theater right. you have rehearsals and opening nights and blah blah right. blah so but um to be at a level where you are and all the things you know in your opening bio i only read a small snippet of all your credits you know, at what point you also skipped over getting an agent, by the way, but we had, <laughs> you don't have to cover that if you don't want to. He's like, Oh, yeah, my agent. Like, most I people out of college would kill for an agent. I know, I know. And I was very, I mean, going to Juilliard, that is one of the things that going to Juilliard really does help you do is get an agent. You don't necessarily keep the agent, the agent doesn't necessarily do anything for you, but you will, you will, most of the people who get out of Juilliard do get one. And, 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 and I was very lucky. I had one that was very cool. I'm not with them anymore. I've had two cents, but, um, but they're, you know, like I was, I was very lucky to get that, but, but yeah, that pilot, I will say that that pilot, all that pilot really did for me was it gave me experience and it gave my, my reps confidence in me. And from then on, they said, okay, he's a series regular. He can be a series regular. And what was interesting about that was two things. Um, it didn't lead to any guest stars. So all those TV credits, you, you know, like, I never did a single guest star until Ugly Betty was over. Hmm. And um, so I was not booking guest stars. Uh, I was, I was, I, I was, I was more in the series regular in a pilot world. So I was, I was doing plays all year, you know, in basements or I, I finally started getting some regional theater jobs and then I would get close to a pilot or I would get a pilot. It wasn't until after Ugly Betty, when when people knew who I was, that I would start getting TV jobs uh, as guest stars. But but um, but the year so the year after that pilot that I got, and that was bad. I, I I was up for series regulars in pilot season in LA. I went I went all the way. I went for it. Didn't get anything. The next year, <clears throat> I said, "Screw this! I'm going back to the basement." <laughs> I was in a basement doing a play. Um, and Will Cantler from Bernie Telsey's office stopped me in the hall after the play and said, that was great. <clears throat> and at the time I was illegally downloading the, um, breakdowns <laughs> um, and I saw that Will Cantler was casting a pilot that was shooting in New York. And I thought I can stay in the basement. I can go do this little part on a pilot. It was a co-star co-star, which is less than a guest star. So I always say like a guest star is, you know, if you're watching law and order, a guest star is the suspect. And the co-star is the, the guy who says, he went that way. Right, so right. The co-star. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's a, it looks like the, the, the description was bitchy gay assistant. And I thought, that's kind of what I did in that play that Will saw, where he liked me in the basement. 
So I asked my reps, please get me an audition for this. This is a job I think I could get. And they said, no, 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 no. you do series regulars. You don't do co-stars. And I was like, I did one series regular and it didn't <laughs> even make it on TV. I've literally never been on TV. Just get me the, I, I mean, at this point I had been in commercials and that was it. I had never been on television. And I said, just let me do this part. Just get me this audition. And they were like, we really don't think you should be doing co-stars. You really are a series regular actor. And I was like, I've literally never been on a series. I've literally never been on television. Get me this audition. And that was Ugly Betty. And that was an example. Of, and, and I got it. And then they made me a series regular immediately. Wow. As soon as it got picked up, I was in every episode. And that was an example of like, know what you know what you can get. Not just like, like not just like know how to work the system. And that's what they, they were thinking. You have to act like a series regular actor in order to get series regular. And I was like, I need to act like a guy who can get a job in order to get a job. And that's what <laughs> I can get. And it, and it was. And I, and, and I did. And a big part of that was, you know, like it was just a good combination. It was, it was the right place. And, you know, talking earlier about timing, it was, I was in the right place at the right time. That was a part that they hadn't figured out yet. All they knew was Bitchy Gay Assistant. And they, they needed somebody to come in and make it work. And then they needed the chemistry between that actor and the person he was assisting to work. And Vanessa Williams was cast later as my boss. And from the moment we started working together, it was a, that we had a connection. She, she dug me. I dug her. And she started, to, she, she started to lean on me for ideas. Like, like, like I had tons of ideas. And she, she was like, I hear you're doing such, what are you doing back there? What are you doing over there? What, are you, what, else, can, what, what else can we do together? And, and, and immediately, like we had a rapport. In fact, I, was, I had this bit where I was mimicking her. I was sort of like doing her behind, I was like doing every move she made behind her. <laughs> right. Um, somebody, some like, you know, makeup artist or something went over to Vanessa and was like, you know what that guy's doing behind you, right? He is mimicking you. And she walked right over to me and she's like, I hear you're mimicking me behind me. What else can I do that you can mimic? She immediately leaned into it. She knew that like together wow. it would be better than, you know, like apart. Whereas another diva might say, uh, stop doing that. And then Vanessa, at one point she was like, stand closer to me. You'll be in this shot. I didn't know where the cameras were. I wasn't, I had no idea what, I, she knew where the camera was. She knew where I could stand. Most, most, most divas would say, hey, stand over there, would you? Right. <laughs> Get out of my shot. So by the end of the pilot shoot, yeah, I was in the cast photo, and when the show got picked up, I was in every episode. And and so much of that, so much of that is right, right place, right time, and right role. But so much of it is Vanessa. I mean, I feel like it's Will Cantler in the lobby of that basement, and then me telling my agents to get me the audition, and then Vanessa embracing me, and then the show being a hit. I mean, there's that. That's the special sauce that you can't. You know, they make so many pilots every year, and so few shows become hits. Um, it's a combination, combination yeah. of everything, though, to make a hit. Because you've got to have good, good actors with a good story, with a good uh, production crew. Yeah. Because I, you know, I think if behind the scenes it's not going well, it it has to carry over. Totally. Totally. But yeah. It's on the screen. It's all on the screen. That's awesome. I had no idea. I've never heard that story about Vanessa, you and Vanessa before. Oh my gosh, she's. I owe her. I owe her so much. And also, you know, that the show came out in 2006. You know, towards the end of. Bush's time in office, like like that's also a part of it, you know. Like you imagine, you imagine what what TV, you know, TV 
because TV is so quick, mm-hmm. you know, moves so quickly. What happens on television is almost always in conversation with what's happening in the world. And, you know, we had just, we were in, in all these wars and Katrina, you know, like, like all like people are floating down rivers and Katrina, like it was, it was like people needed something like Ugly Betty, which was a show about, you know, a, 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 an empowered Latina, smart, amazing Latina woman in, in a superficial world. People needed a show like that to look to. And it was just the right, right place for the right. I mean, four years later in the, in, in, in the, in the Obama administration, it might not have hit, you know, we mm-hmm. might not have been something like that. Wow. And then, yeah, that was before, before Netflix, when Netflix was still, I guess, a DVD service, right? Yeah. I mean, when we right, were, right. it was the second year that Mad Men hit and that was like, oh, look at this cable. Oh yeah, gosh that that was when I was like up to my eyeballs in Lost and Heroes. Yes, right. Yeah, that was a time. Yeah, gosh, those were many from it at the same time. Yeah, it was that escapism. You're right. It's it was a certain a certain time when we just like we needed to get out. We needed to have some good news, and we couldn't just go on our phones because I I don't I don't actually remember when the first iPhone came out. I don't even know if there was an iPhone yet in 2006. I got my first iPhone at the end of. The first year of Ugly Betty. So, uh, yeah, I was I was doing a play yeah. in first hiatus, and that's when I got my first iPhone. Wow, yeah. So there was like no streaming. Smartphones were still like the Razor. Probably was the hit yeah. thing back then, right? <laughs> the Razor phone. Black, I mean, Vanessa had a BlackBerry. She had one of those. Oh yeah, that was the coolest phone I'd ever seen. We're gonna take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Going back to to well, let's let's talk about Smithtown actually. Oh, okay. Because yeah. this gets into technology. I think it's actually sort of a good segue. Um, Smithtown, Smithtown. Okay, so it came from a production studio called the Studios of Key West, right? Yep. And I assume they come out of Key West, and this is all shot virtually. And I want to get into how they contacted you in the casting of this because this is all brand new in COVID times. But um, the synopsis of Smithtown is in a small I'll try that again in a small Midwestern University town a text message is sent that sets off a chain reaction altering the course of the lives of many who live in Smithtown the play asks the question how does technology and the need for immediate personal gratification on social media undermine common sense rationality and the rules of behavior in contemporary America that is a very good I guess log line, but it, yeah, like everybody needs to see this, and I don't quite know how to talk about it without giving it away. Yeah, I but know. there is something very serious that your character is responsible for, and it's everything is over Zoom, and it's got Anne Harada in it, and Constance Schulman from Orange Is the New Black, and none of you are ever in the same scene together. You're all recorded. Like, well, tell us about the isolation part of all of this because I don't yeah. know if that was intended, but I felt like all the characters were very, very isolated while watching it. Yeah. So it was, it's a, it's written for the stage, uh, not for, for this, not for zoom. Um, and it was written to be, you know, like four actors doing, uh, consecutive monologues. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think when the pandemic hit and, and, and zoom theater began, Drew Larimore, who wrote it, uh, had the idea that it could be adapted very easily to the medium. 
And so, um, so I play a teacher uh, who, in the original version, was it was his first, his first day of teaching at a new school. Uh, but in this version, he's teaching on Zoom. So the whole thing really does work kind of seamlessly on Zoom. And um, and he's teaching a class about uh, about basically about how technology can be a weapon and how the how your phone can be a weapon and how social media can be a weapon. And he he uses a story from his own life uh, that that you assume is going to be relatively innocuous, but it actually turns out to be extremely dangerous. And an ex- like he, he an, an example of him himself using the phone as a weapon, and it is mm-hmm. extremely. It's very upsetting. I, I mean, I couldn't. I kind of couldn't believe it when I read it. You know, I knew Drew from around, and and. He asked me to look at the script and, and 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 if I was interested in doing it. And I don't get to play roles like that very often. I don't get to play. I mean, he's a, the character's charming and and you know, like uh, there's there's some humor. So like those things were familiar to me. But then it turns out that he is he's um, actually a, um, you know like a predator. He turns out to be he doesn't even really realize it. He's but he is actually uh, a predator and he has. Uh, essentially um, caused great trauma. I don't want to spoil anything, but great trauma to one person that has caused a chain reaction to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it was, what I thought was interesting about it was I, I, I liked the medium a lot. I liked the idea that we could make something for Zoom that was for Zoom, that, that where the audience did not have to suspend their disbelief. Um, because and I, I because you know I mean obviously like there's so many cool things happening in Zoom theater so many so many interests so many people are solving so many problems um, and th- and I've been in, I've been in some really exciting ones I've, I, that I've been really proud of um, but a lot of the time you're you're having to you you have to the audience has to suspend their disbelief or they have to have some kind of understanding of how it all works how the sausage gets made and what I liked about this was. The audience didn't need any of that information. They didn't need to be pros at watching Zoom theater. You know, like I, I sort of equate so much of Zoom theater is like uh, like in the theater going to readings, watching readings, where you have to have like an understanding of how plays are written in order to watch a stage reading of a play. And and that's sort of what Zoom theater, I, I think a lot of Zoom theater is like. Um, but this was you know, it was adapted for the medium. And and the other thing that I thought was so great about it was that it was a monologue in one. So it was one take. Um, and that feels like theater to me. It was pre-taped, but it was in one take, meaning that meaning you watch me go from A to B to C to D and Constance Shulman and, and Anne. And, you know, you watch these actors go through the whole thing. And that's something that you don't, That's that's one of the things of course I miss audiences. Of course I miss being together. I miss being in a rehearsal room and being on stage in front of people. But I also miss doing it in its entirety every night. I mean, that's something that's so special about the theater. It's like you do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You get to do the whole show. And and the audience knows that it's special for them that night. And that, and that you might do it the night before and the night after. But that performance that they saw is completely unique. And so, like the, the 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 performance, the performances in Smithtown, they're 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 captured forever, um, but they were done in one. There was one take. Um, 
we had to choose one take. Uh, and, and, and so I was really, that, I found that really thrilling as a, as an artist who, who has, you know, I mean, I've worked in TV a lot and, and now done some zoom theater. And so, so like, I know that, I know the difference between, you know, when something's cut together later or when they chose the best three takes or whatever, and, and when it's mine and I, and it's, you know, from beginning to end, it was my creation and, or, or, you know, like it was a collaboration obviously, but like, that's why theater acting is is really more like dance or live music performance than film acting because film acting is you know it's just you you put it all together you, you know it's 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 a real collaboration with an editor and a, and, a, and a composer and a director and a production designer there's so many other things that go into it but when you sit down in a theater and you watch a performer do the do the thing that they had practiced from beginning to end that's that's part of the art. I mean, yeah, a, a play needs to send you thinking, like Smithtown will, and a play needs to to um, to, to to inspire a, a, a congregation. Um, but it's also the feat of watching a, a, a theater artist go on the journey in in front of you, right then and there. How many times did you did you do the the scene? Well, we rehearsed for a while. We rehearsed. Like, you know, I think we, we, we had like five, six rehearsals and then we did the scene probably five, six times over the course of a couple of days. And then, and then, you know, I remember Steven, the director, uh, after a take, he was like, that was a really good one. We've got it. You got another one in you. And I don't, I don't know which one he used, but there were, there was a two or three that like, I got all the way through it without screwing up and, and we we're like, okay, that, that was pretty good. Do we like that one? Um, so it was, it was not exactly like doing theater, but it, it, there was something about it that felt more like theater than, than film. Yeah. Has the, like <clears throat> seeing the finished product all edited together. I mean, did you see the whole script when you decided to, to sign on or were you only given your, your part? No, I read the whole thing. Yeah, I read the whole yeah. thing. So uh, I knew it went. <laughs> right. But so seeing, seeing the whole thing put together as a finished product then has, has your personal take on your approach to social media changed and or like how you look at things? It's such an interesting question because I'm actually, I'm on kind of a break from social media. Um, and I don't know how much of it is Smithtown. I mean, I certainly felt like I really, I, I have for a long time felt that social media is extremely dangerous and can be a wonderful place. Hello, Bernie memes. You know, and I, I like, like, you know, <laughs> I can think of very few things as delightful as Bernie Sanders um, in his mittens of, uh, in the last few days. Like that <laughs> is really, really exciting. But also, you know, like Twitter gave us uh, a fascist president. Like, you know, he, he, and, and, and now you can see now that he's off Twitter and, you know, all of his minions have sort of been silenced. You can see how quickly he's gone away. I mean, uh, he may be back, but like, you know, the power that he had and the power that was taken away from him is extremely scary um, in both ways. You know, like, mm -hmm. it, I mean, of course, like his power was taken away and he could have walked right over to the press room and, and done whatever he wanted there. He was just too cowardly to do anything at that point once mm -hmm. he was silenced. But, but, but I think, you know, I think <clears throat> I was very active in the election. I, I did a lot of, you know, phone banking and I, and I, and I, gave money when I could. And, and I, I was very active on social media in, in trying to get people to vote, uh, and vote, you know, for Democrats and, and, you know, show up and, and then to an extent for the runoff. But, 
once the election had happened and, and Biden won and, and Trump was going so very crazy and the pandemic was raging, it just didn't feel like a place for me anymore. Not because I didn't have anything to say, but like, I didn't feel like, you know, and I have, I have some followers, but I don't necessarily get a lot of traction on social media. You know, I think I have more followers than actual influence. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I don't think, you know, when I tweet things, they don't really go anywhere. I don't feel like they really go anywhere. And so I just felt like I was sort of shouting into a shouting void, you know, like a void of other people shouting. And it was starting to, you know, I, I just didn't, I didn't like it. And it, it, it was, and I didn't, I wasn't promoting anything. And, and, you know, I just felt like this isn't good for me. And, and then there was a period of time where, um, <laughs> I hadn't watched, this is dorky, but I hadn't yet watched The Mandalorian, but I started to hear that there were spoilers. And so I was like, I'm going to, I'm not going on social media at <laughs> that, all. That was the nail in the coffin was The Mandalorian. And then I got to a point where I was like, every time I thought about, because you know, it's an addiction. Every right. time I thought about going on social media, I would play a word game on my phone instead. So I'd pick up my phone to go on Twitter. And instead of going on Twitter, I would play a word game and it, so much happier. It just, I was so, I was so much more at peace with myself. And, and I came back, you know, I, I saw the Mandalorian, I know what happens. And I came back to social media and, and I was, <laughs> but I'm not really active. And, and I, I think, you know, I, I really do think like it's, it's a, it's a scary place and it, it is, a, it's a dangerous place. And I would much rather, I really want to go back to work. I don't want my work to be social media. And I don't like when social media feels like part of the job. Um, I'm always like, you know, promoting something is, 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 is great. I'm happy to promote. I'm happy to signal boost. But like I, this, my work is not coming up with funny tweets or saying the, you know, or, or the best or, or taking good pictures on Instagram. Like that's not, you know, like, I, my work is something different. And, and, and I think, I do think that Smithtown in a way, it's sort of, it, it, I, I don't know that it, that it was a new idea for me, but it definitely instilled this idea that it is, a, it can be a very dangerous place. And I knew that it could be in it. I mean, I've had tweets go viral. You, you, when you have a tweet go viral, it is extremely exciting. And I can understand why people who have them a lot become addicted to them. I get it. I get it. It's a very gratifying thing, especially during a pandemic when people are actually isolated from each other. Like, I get it. Um, but I do think you can really hurt somebody without even knowing it. And that's what happens in Smithtown. And it's, mm. it is quite a chain reaction and it's very upsetting. And, and I, you know, I don't think that like you have to do plays like that to uh, necessarily, I don't think, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I, I don't think that it's going to tell people necessarily, oh, I shouldn't do that. Cause I think pe people, most people who watch it will know immediately that you is would not, think. you would hope, do. you would hope. But I do think that it is an extreme version of what's possible on social media and, and how many <clears throat> just very, you know, very easy, easy jabs. Are, are are made constantly. Well, it's easy. To, it's easy to hide behind the anonymity, and I mean, even just looking at something at, like a hateful comment that has a couple thousand upvotes. You know, right. people aren't even agreeing 
or physically, they're not saying anything, but they've agreed with it because they've upvoted it or whatever, or liked it or whatever the case is. So yeah, it's, it's a really scary place. And you said it was an addiction. I've said it on the podcast before that chemically, you know, our brains release, I, I think it's oxytocin, uh, oxytocin, serotonin, I forget which it is. Um, but the same chemical we feel when we're in love with somebody, we get when we see that like, you know, mm. so it's a quick hit. A quick wow. little shot of love that our brain releases. So we're like, we're falling in love and feel that need and that companionship from our yeah. phone. Totally. Yeah, yeah. So it's scary. And I try I try to time box it. Do you do? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're like, my wife and I, we have rules. We're like, no electronics in, in the bed. Like, before, you know, for, we don't want it to be the first thing we look at when we wake up or the last thing before we go to bed because then, like, we don't talk to each other if we're sitting there scrolling through Instagram. Like, right. dinner time is sacred. If we can at least get the kids to sit down, then we're like, no electronics, yeah. of course. Um, we want to talk to each other because we all have busy lives. But then the rest of the time, like, I personally love getting into a car where I can just look at what's changing outside as the windows as, as the scenery goes by and listen to music. So yeah. I'm not constantly just like even in an uber when i did take ubers before the pandemic <laughs> okay. uh you know so i'm not just like looking down on my phone getting car sick scrolling through instagram like sit with yourself for a damn minute and and just think because you come up with your best ideas when you're not judging yourself and comparing yourself against somebody else's representation of their life right totally i mean you i'm sure you've been there too I, i'll be scrolling through twitter and i'll realize i'm looking at the same tweets again I'm like, what? why am I looking at this tweet? Why am I reading this? What am I doing here? I've, I've already read all of this. I could be doing literally, I could be, I could be thinking my own thoughts over and over again, and that would be healthier. But there's more comments now. There's more comments on the previous right. tweets, and now you got to go back and read all the comments and the comments on those comments. And what are they saying? And who is this person? And who do they like? Yeah. yeah who yeah. do they follow? And, 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 and who have they retweeted? And, and, oh, yeah, gosh. But, but Twitter's already become less interesting in the last two days, which is great. Yeah. It's absolutely, great. absolutely. I, want, I mean, I now, now my new my new obsession is Clubhouse. So find What's me on Clubhouse. What's Clubhouse? What's Clubhouse? Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> um, Clubhouse uh, is this new platform that is it's it's basically an internet party line. If you remember the old days of you know calling, yep. picking up your phone, party line, and so you can make rooms, which are called no, you can fake. Hold on. I'm new to this, so I'm not explaining it well. You can make a room so you and I can go on there and we just voice chat with each other and then we can have a private room and invite people or open it up and we can set a topic. So like you and I, we say, learn about podcasting and you and I are just in there talking. Other people come in, we can schedule it. Like I, I actually hosted a, an event last night that was like the fundamentals of recording at home and I had like 25 people there and it was fun and they were asking questions. And so it's building a network, audio only, with these people, and because it's such a new platform and it's invite only right now, there's like all these super, super high level celebrities, millionaires, entrepreneurs, marketers, influencers that are just like, yeah, what's up? Email me, let's connect. Wow. And it's insane right now. It's like, imagine getting into Facebook right when Zuckerberg launched it and you could only still ha join with a with an with an email with a, right. a university email address okay, and you right. created the first podcast group. Wow. So people coming in search for podcast, you're the only one there. You're oh, so wow. so like that's where this is right now. So um I told everybody. 
on yeah. this podcast. And now, well, everyone, follow me on Clubhouse if you've got Clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I really fascinating. Yeah, I used up my invites. I'll get somebody else to send you an invite though, because right. it's, I was actually I was chatting with Karen Olivo this morning about it because she's on there. I saw Karen in there last night, and we were chatting about it. And like, I was in a room the other night with Amber Iman and Michael R. Jackson because they were hosting something about acting. And it, it's wow. it's just you just listen to these people, and you can raise your hand. And if they call on you in the app, then you can ask your question. They bring you up on stage digitally in the app, so you can ask your question. And it's oh, wow. and join the conversation. It's a really cool platform. So because it's audio. I mean, you, you fill out your bios, you see your profile picture. I hopefully people won't hide behind the fact that you know you can't see video, but audio only makes it real, and it's just kind of like a big educational party right now. It's really weird. I'm sort of sort of digging it. Call. What's that? Conference call. Yeah, yeah. It's like thousands of conference calls happening simultaneously, and you can just hop around between any public one that you want. And, and, and join and, it if and, you have something to say. And everybody can see that you're there. So it's not like you can listen okay. in on somebody's private conversation. Correct. Correct. You cannot. Right. So everyone, if you're there, everyone sees you that you're there. And you can raise your hand and they can bring you up. They can kick you out if they don't want you there. Or if wow. you're being a troll, you know, you can report trolling. So anyway, uh-huh. it's, <laughs> it's a really interesting platform. Uh, Clubhouse. Cool. All right. Yeah. All right. So I'll, I'll, get, I'll get you in. I'll get you in. All um, right. All right. So... Smithtown, though, everybody who's listening, <clears throat> get tickets at TK, sorry, tskw.org. Tskw.org. It's, yeah. uh, it's premiering February 13th through 27th. All right. So right before we get into the closing questions here, I have a question from one of my patrons on Patreon. Cheryl wants to know, actually, she says, loved, loved, loved his buyer and seller streaming earlier in the pandemic. And she wants to know how that came about. Oh, wow. Well, we were going to... Good, thank you for the question, Cheryl. Uh, we, were, uh, uh, we were preparing to do Byron Seller for a few nights live at the Rattlestick, where we originated it, as a benefit performance uh, fundraiser for the Rattlestick and for Pride Plates, the LGBTQ theater festival that I um, co-produce in June. And when the pandemic hit, we knew we weren't going to be able to do that. But um, I had learned it. I had it in in my bones and my brain again after a few years, and so I kept, you know, as as we were quarantined and in isolation, I kept looking over in the corner of our apartment at our dining room and thinking, I could do the whole show over there, and <laughs> maybe people would want to watch it. Maybe we could raise some money, and so uh, we we I, I reached out to my Pride Place guys. And, uh, and, and we reached out to Paul Wontorek at Broadway.com and he said, I can host that. I can get that out there. And so I said, let me give it a shot. It's really going to be about the lighting. I don't know if I can, you know, and about the camera angles. I don't know. I don't want it to just be static. I want to make sure I can really move around. So let me get into it. Let me try it. And so uh, Nick Corey, who's a wonderful director and had been Stephen Brackett's assistant, Stephen Brackett, who directed the original production, um, and Nick, who's also an actor who had played the role in Byron Seller, um, he hopped on Zoom with me from Indiana and we moved all of my furniture and he helped, he and my partner Ryan, who helped me move everything, um, the three of us played around and we figured out how to make it work. And uh, it was extremely exciting and very, very 
Uh, we made a lot of money. A lot of people watched it. And it, I think it was, it was one of those things that uh, people were, it, and I think part of what worked about it is what I was talking about earlier was you watched me do the whole thing. I didn't stop. You know, it was mm-hmm. like from beginning to end. Um, so like that thrill of live, and it was live originally, but you could watch it after that. And it was still, you know, it, you could tell I was doing it right then and there. And I think that that's part of what made it made it work. And it's an amazing piece. And, and the piece worked for the medium. And I knew it really well. You know, all those, I think all of those aspects are what made uh, it, it, it make sense and made it possible and made it work. It was really cool. It was really, and, and I, you know, people have asked me to do other one person shows in quarantine and it's, just, I just can't even wrap my head around it. It's, I, I knew that one way too well. And, and it was so perfect for, for the medium and and the fact that I could look right into the camera and and that was my audience and I felt everybody and I'd done it so many times that I knew where all the laughs were so even though nobody was laughing at me in the room I could imagine you could pause for it I could imagine where they were laughing exactly yeah I want to wrap up here with the three standard closing questions that I ask Ooh. everybody on the podcast the first one is what motivates you uh, I'm motivated by new voices and that's not to say that i feel like i'm a new voice but i i feel like the 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 new new voices new works um that is what i feel like is going to take us forward uh that is what is going to get us out of this pandemic artistically you know when i think about the renaissance that will come from the Mm -hmm. theater reopening and and new things being made new really actually new things being made uh for television and film uh, it's 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 new voices. I need I need artists to remind me how to feel again uh, and how to feel about what we've been through. I love that. I love that. Um, and then, what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path? Um, <clears throat> the advice I would give to my younger self is uh, that you your anxiety is uh, natural. And that it does not actually define you, um, and and uh, you you can you 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 are already using it to your advantage, but you're allowed to use it to your advantage. I think that I think that you know a lot of us in the arts are fueled by our own anxiety and our own um, uh, certainly our our uh, you know anxiety for sure, but also our own paranoia and our own depression. And those can be used to our advantage, uh, you know, without a, a, a deep well of emotion. Um, we can't accurately portray the human condition and without, um, and I think so much of so much anxiety is what makes people dynamic on stage. You know, you don't get, you don't get, you don't become interesting on stage by being boring in real life or being normal in real, or mundane in real life. And, uh, so I think, you know, I, I spent a lot of time paranoid about my own anxiety when I was younger. And I, I would definitely tell myself to embrace that. Don't, I wouldn't say chill out because I think part of what was working is that you weren't chilled out. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's okay. It's okay that you're, it's okay that you're wound up and you should, you should appreciate that about yourself. All right. I, I think that's great. And yes, you're, you're, if when I think of you, I think of a little bit of controlled, wound up <laughs> neuroses. It's yeah. fun, fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right. Uh, the last question then is 
Hardest one here. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Ooh, one show for the rest of my life, but I can see it as many times as I want. I would say Twelfth Night by Shakespeare. Ooh. That play has real tragedy, has real farce, uh, has incredible poetry. I mean, there are lines in that that show that make me weep. Um, It is magical. It is uh, human. It is uh, very real. And it is... Um, it's, it's an, I think it's, I think it's, it's, I think it's probably my favorite, favorite play. Certainly I've seen many, many productions of it. Some terrible, but I love every one of them. Wonderful. All right, everybody, please remember to check out Smithtown, February 13th through 27th at tskw.org. Listen to Michael play the lovable, neurotic (laughs) husband in As the Curtain Rises on the Broadway Podcast Network, bpn.fm slash As the Curtain Rises. Michael, where can we find you on social? Oh, well, on on social media, I'm on Twitter, at Michael Yuri. I'm on Instagram, at Michael Yuri Likes It. I'm on Facebook, and, and, and beyond that, I am not anywhere. <clears throat> and if you don't see me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, listen to this podcast, and you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs> you know where I'm gone. <laughs> All right, thank you. Now, we can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. Please leave a rating and a review if you are listening. This is edited by Matthew Hendershot. Jukebox the Ghost provided the intro and outro music. And Michael Yuri, thank you so much. This thank has been you. so much fun. It's been really nice talking to you. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate you having me. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.